Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. So before we dig into Pride Month 2021 and welcome you to our episode, we actually have a special trailer from fellow writing group member Emily Gilchrist, who I know from Stony Brook because she's a PhD candidate in cultural analysis and theory. She is the founder of Vital Thought, which is providing courses throughout July. I'm actually teaching a queer poetics course, July 5th and 8th. And there are so many courses that you can choose from, and it is all geared towards the public and they are accessible for general audiences. They are live two session workshop style virtual seminars. So we've included a link to Vital Thoughts so you can explore the course catalog and follow them on their social media accounts. So please check out their website in our show notes. And here's Emily describing what Vital Thought is. Hi, I'm Emily Gilchrist, the founder of Vital Thought Critical Insight Courses. Vital Thought offers radical academic humanities content unpacked and contextualized for all audiences. Our two-session virtual seminars are led by PhD-trained instructors, and need-based fee waivers are available for every course. We also provide workshops and consulting for private and corporate groups. July courses are open for enrollment now at vitalthought.org. Sign up today. Hi, welcome to Pride Month 2021 from the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. As we've said on our website, we're celebrating, reflecting, memorializing. um, And we said this month is a big deal for us, which is very loaded. So we've all been talking about how to best introduce this. And we decided that first, we've actually never done this. And I apologize, we should have done our pronouns at some time. Um, So what I wanna do is each of us is going to go around on the team and we're going to give our pronouns and we're also just going to, you know, state our identities. However, each of us best feels we wanna out ourselves or what we're comfortable with. So because I'm offering all of this, I guess I have to take it on first. Um, It's gonna be a real surprise. Yeah, that's Adam there. Uh, So I'm Andrew. My pronouns are he, him, his. And I am a gay, white, cisgender man. Yeah, okay. That's what I'll offer right now. Um, So Adam, how about you go next? Absolutely. Um, So my name is Adam. My pronouns are he, his, him. I am white. I identify as straight. Um... Amen. Next. Okay, Erica. Hi, my name is Erica. I use either she, her, hers, or they, them, theirs pronouns. Most often she, her, hers. Um, I usually call myself cisgender, but my ideal dream gender would be a shapeshifter um and i usually refer to myself as queer as a football bat (laughs) thank you erica uh mary okay i'll wait for adam to it's gonna be a while select himself okay remember adam we said the mute button um Mute button is not for laughing at Erica's jokes. Okay, well. <laughs> sorry. Pray I know continue. Erica did offer an, a humorous analogy. To be Pray fair. Continue. Okay, to so be Mary, fair. Please, Mary. Hi, so I'm Mary. I go by she, her, hers, usually. However, I'm not offended by they, them, theirs, 
you know, that doesn't bother me. I generally identify as a straight cis woman. However, I also feel like most cis women also do know that making out with women is the best over men. So, you know, keep it how you will, you know? <laughs> yeah, we have a lot definitely to discuss. And wait, uh, uh, I see Erica's about to jump in. We have a rule, which is we each are going to not jump into each other because we want to be mindful of you listening right now that you know who's talking. Um, because this is a heavy, we said we're celebrating, but we're also memorializing, we're reflecting, and we're in a current moment that's really fraught with different ideas about what it means to celebrate pride or even what pride is. And even as a team, we're always transparent with you. We've said that from the beginning. Adam and I created this. It's almost been a year. We don't have our celebration yet. Don't worry. Everyone's invited. We are going to have a party. But um, oh, there's a teaser. Yeah. That this, we've had arguments. And I want us to be open about that because it's important. We do not all agree on the same issues. And neither shall we because we have created a community where we can openly disagree and try to understand each person's views. So going from that, um, we had directed you to our website where we discuss all of the really exciting and a plethora of website information coming at you. But um, I know Erica does wanna eventually talk about this, which is this is the 52nd anniversary of the Stonewall riots. But Erica, as we're recording this, reminded me that there's another anniversary coming up soon. And what is that, Erica? Uh, tomorrow, actually, is the 40th anniversary of the very first reports in the media of the cluster of pneumonia that would eventually become what we now know as AIDS. Mm. And I am a little bit older than everybody else involved in this podcast and have distinctly different memories of growing up and seeing that unfold yeah. as I was growing up and hearing some some stories and seeing things. Um, and I think especially after having gone through this corona pandemic in the last year, it's really brought a lot of that back for me and caused me to do some, some serious and heavy duty reflection. One of the things I've always said I was grateful for is that compared to some of my friends, people who aren't much older than I am, I never had to go through some of their experiences with making massive behavior changes or going through tremendous fear about things like, is it even safe to kiss people I know? Um, well, you know, I've heard about these experiences from friends of mine and um, you know, to, to have now experienced a little bit of that, um, I can see how it would be terrifying to go through once. And I, I don't know how some of them have survived it twice. And that's nothing, you know, that, you know, that's not even talking about friends I've lost along the way. Um, or how, you know, how my career in public health and social work was driven by that growing up experience or any of those things that, you know, you'll either see me writing about or maybe hear me talking about. Yeah, if it's all right, Erica, can you um, disclose to us how old you were when the first reported cases were coming out? In 1981, in June of 1981, I had just turned six. Six. Um, okay. Just I just turned six. Okay. What I really remember, though, is a few years later, 
1984, 85, around there, 9, 10, maybe 1986 when I was 11, um, when we started hearing a lot more about celebrity deaths and when we started to hear more about things like the discovery of the actual virus, HIV, that causes AIDS and um, when testing began to become available, things like that. Um, that's a much, much more distinct memory. I mean, I can remember the big news magazines, Time, Newsweek, all of them with big time cover stories. Um, if you want a kind of an amusing story from my innocent childhood, uh, somewhere in there, I was sitting in a doctor's office and I'd finished the book that I brought with me. And so I was flipping through magazines and the cover story on one of them was about AIDS because that wasn't all that unusual. And at that point, I knew enough to know what a condom was. And I had heard the term oral sex before and I knew what sex was. Wait, you were how old? 10-ish, somewhere oh, around there. You know, this was you know, stuff I picked up mostly from, you know, news media, magazines, things, newspapers, things like that. So this article talks about people using condoms for oral sex. And I was absolutely baffled, completely puzzled, because I had no idea how somebody could get a condom on their tongue because ah. I thought that oral sex meant French kissing. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> so we started with sadness, but I think it's important because this is an LGBTQ inheritance question, especially something, you know, now you know Erica's age if you've done the math. Um, <laughs> but I'm turning 29 in September. I think Mary is around. Yes, I'm already 29. I don't want okay. to admit it, but yes, I'm already 29. <laughs> okay. Oh, boo And then Adam, how old are you? Stupid misogyny. Uh, I'm 34. I'll be 35 in September. Okay. And I was just remembering as Erica was talking that I do remember my mom telling me about AIDS. Like, you know, the way the way parents talk to their children about serious topics, right, periodically throughout the child's life, if the parents and children are connected. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember being, you know, confused and flummoxed and, and it being very distant from me because I was, I was pretty young when it happened. Um, but it was one of these things where like, I mean, I was born more recently, obviously, than the first cases. Um, the first cases, Erica, you, was, you were saying were in 81, I was born in 86. So there was never a time in my life when that wasn't a thing until recently, one could argue. Hmm. Um, but it's, but I, I distinctly remember when it stopped being an American problem but continued very emphatically being a problem in the rest of the world, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia and stuff like that. And like, I hate it when that happens. I hate that pattern because it's happening again, right? The United States is coming out of COVID to an extent, dragging our feet, half the adult population maybe refusing to get vaccinated, whatever. Um, but like, and meanwhile, my fiance is sitting in Bangalore under lockdown because uh, because it's still very much a problem that the rest of the world is facing because they don't have as much money. Yeah. Well, because I know where I want to turn to literature because it helps me think about these ideas, um, especially because Erica's already tied together um, HIV slash AIDS, the crisis to coronavirus. Um, right. 
the play that I saw right before the lockdown, um, I had maybe two months before March of 2020, I had just seen part two of The Inheritance, which um, is by Matthew Lopez and is not a direct through line from Angels in America by Tony Kushner, but is extends into um, 2018. So it's much more, you know, it's a very contemporary play, but um, has many different generations present that Tony, that, no, I was gonna say Tony Kushner, that Angels in America does not do as much, which is show you different ages. Um, it's, most of them are all in their thirties, except for Roy Cohn, but I'm gonna leave that where it is. Um, but I just wanted, if it's okay, just to read when the first young man, there's all these young men listed um, and the text is now released. So I wanted to get my hands on it. Um, so young man one says, he has a story to tell. It is banging around inside him, aching to come out. But how does he begin? He opens his favorite novel, hoping to find inspiration in its first familiar sentence. And in reading those words, he finds himself once again in the gentle, reassuring presence of their author. An older man enters. He is E.M. Oh, these are the stage directions. He is E.M. Farster. We, like all his intimates, shall call him Morgan. So if you don't know, they're reading Morris by E.M. Farster, which is credited as being one of the first openly gay novels. Um, queer, but, you know, gay. And um, it's, I know, and Erica's tearing. It's really touching. I mean, and this is only the beginning of the play. Um, I don't even want to tell you what happens at the end of part one, which, you know, they leave you to then come back again to see, um, which for me, I waited a month. Um, but it's this moment where they don't know how to begin the narrative of tracing a queer history because of loss. And they go back to Morris, the novel, because it kind of provides this opening of, oh, here's the first, you know, celebrated gay novel, but that's not true either because it was published when Forrester died in the 1970s, even though he wrote it in the 1910s. So I think my, by reading this, not only to have such a heartwarming quote, which it is, um, but um, there is a lot of reflection on those who've died from HIV slash AIDS, um, that they eventually, some of those ghosts come back. And I'm kind of teasing you with the end of part one, but they eventually go to one of the protagonist's houses. And this is a play, so right, we're imagining it staged. And all of these young men come through the audience and oh, it was probably one of the most touching moments in theater. Um, and they try to reunite and talk to the younger gay men in the cast. Um, but they go to this house where they all passed away because this home in upstate New York served as a place for their passing. Um, so it's important to me, I think, to mention this because for so long, I think too, I don't wanna be defined as an openly gay man by the trauma. I don't wanna be defined by HIV slash AIDS. And there's a lot of celebration too. There's a lot of loving your agency. And um, well, I don't have to talk about it now, but there's um, like you'll see in my big thing, which comes out Monday, there's my own thinking of writing my own coming out narrative, which Erica was present when I wrote it. And so was Dina in our writing group. And I teared up because I finally found the voice of how this all connected of trauma of with my therapist, I needed to write that down. I had never reflected on what it was about and that I don't, I don't need to listen to others define my coming out. I had to figure it out myself, which is why I talk about this quote that Adam thought maybe was 
from another source, but was actually a quote I said. Um, but, um, you know, I don't have to wait for you to give me the key, which, you know, really came from a discussion with Tiffany, who's part mm -hmm. of our community. Um, you know, it was a beautiful discussion. Yeah. And for me, it's really a key. You'll see in the big thing, I tie it to the closet, like coming out of the closet, but like, what does the key mean in different moments for each of us? I mean, um, yeah. So yeah, I think like I'll even say right now, I'm nervous and it's not that I'm nervous because I'm in this group. I think I'm nervous because I don't want to do injustice to so many LGBTQ voices by staying in the HIV AIDS moment, if that makes sense. It does, it does. I mean, for me, perhaps because of my age or because of where I came from and, and how I came through the experience, it was definitely a driving force in my coming out experience. But for me, I mean, you, you wanted to bring this around to literature. For a long time, queer literature was, well, queer literature and in companionship with queer literature, my work and in HIV related stuff, I got involved in peer education when I was in high school. So I was doing peer to peer education, which ended up leading to uh, a master's in social work and a career in public health, doing HIV prevention work and testing and whatnot with adolescents and young adults. Um, but for me, it was first a way to explore safely but from a distance the idea of queer identity and my own identity and where I fit in and eventually to ensure that I had connections and community when I was ready to come out um, and I mean, I spent a long time being queer coded by other people, but also deeply, deeply and passionately and very intensely trying to hide it from everybody, including myself. Um, and struggling a lot with what actual labels fit. Um, I mean, in the end, you know, I, um, I'm not a fan of it. I'm not a fan of the Kinsey scale because it's linear. And if you read my bios, they all say, forget the binary, embrace the and. I am all about taking it all in. Um, maybe that makes me greedy or maybe it makes me hedonist. It makes me happy, but um, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, queer, you know, it, it, it both gave me safety and solace and shelter and gave me power when I needed it. Yeah, so. the, the literature did. Yeah. I mean, having access to it, it you know, it was, <laughs> it was pretty, you know, scandalous, pretty touchy to be reading a lot of the contemporary stuff. I mean, sure, you know, James Baldwin, that kind of stuff was one thing, but that's, you know, classic literature. That's the stuff that they assign you to read in school. So that's okay. Not the it, openly queer things, though. Usually, no. you're not assigned Giovanni's room. No, it, we weren't assigned Giovanni's room. We were assigned some of the other, some of the other stuff, some of the short stories in particular. Uh, but because we were assigned James Baldwin, for example, when we were s 
supposed to read additional work. Like there was one vacation in 10th grade, <clears throat> excuse me, in 10th grade, where we were supposed to pick an author that we had read a short story by during the term or during the you know previous two quarters, whatever it was, and read a novel by that author. So, you know, Giovanni's room was on the table. Um, and I, I, that, I mean, that was the year that I got into, into James Baldwin was, was 10th grade. It was, but when you, you know, when you start reading the contemporary stuff, when you start reading Dancer from the Dance or mm -hmm. David Levitt's stuff, or, you know, when you start reading Tales from the City, that's when you start getting, you know, the real, should you really be reading this? Isn't this too mature for high school um, kind of thing? High school. Uh, yeah. No, I'm just, sorry. I, I'm, I'm remembering when my English teacher pointed out a treasury of beat poetry when I, I must have been in eighth grade. And obviously no treasury of beat poetry would be complete without Howell. But beat poetry was okay. I mean, I read- why, why was it okay? I mean, you guys know the lines, but for the benefit of our listeners, um, the, 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 the bits about like, um, I, I forget exactly what the line is. It's something about being fucked by um, angelic motorcyclists and screaming with joy. I don't- Oh wait, are you talking about Rocky Horror Picture Show? <laughs> right, exactly. A lot, like a lot, a lot of these things come into our filter into our, uh, A lot of these things filter into our consciousness earlier than high school, which which I think is honestly for the best. I mean, yeah. there are no, there I, are people I, who who make it their life's work to keep elementary and middle school students from and high school students from discovering queer literature. No, I think and. To those people, I, I I wish they would get a life. Sorry, I do please, too. Please continue. Please I continue. do too. Why beat poetry? I think, again, it's one of those things that even at that point, it was, you know, 30, 30, 40 years out, it was starting to fall into the category of literature rather than scandal or obscenity um, kind of thing. I mean, nobody blinked when I read Naked Lunch in ninth grade or 10th grade, whatever. And it was just whatever sort of tumbled out from there. Uh -oh, sorry, um, sorry, my computer froze. Can you go back again, Erica? Sure, sure. Um, Adam was asking about um, why was beat poetry okay? And I was saying that because um, at the time I was reading it, you know, it was, it would have been, you know, 30, 40 years later, and it was falling into literature rather than obscenity at that point. Um, and um, so nobody was, you know, nobody was blinking when you were picking up stuff like Naked Lunch or um, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, you know, any of that stuff. Um, because time, yeah. you know, time is one of those things that soothes people's feelings about what's obscene and what's not in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, this, this, this stuff like beat poetry, which I loved, I mean, read tons and tons yes. and tons of, because we had, you know, these, these weekly responses that we had to write for my writing fiction and poetry class. And the idea was, as long as it's fiction or poetry, read it, read whatever you want. And a great class. Uh, yeah, it was. I was wow. so grateful for a teacher who who didn't make an issue out of my reading some of these things, mm -hmm. um, at least not to me. Um, I suspect he had a few words with 
other people behind my back based on some things that happened but um oh like the you know there's like a nightmare well it's really not that terrible a story it just felt terrible at the time you know about my high school guidance counselor um and queer you know queer coding me and things like that but um but that's i mean that's what i was doing is and the literature that I was reading, interestingly, was dominated by men. It was almost entirely queer men. And the contemporary stuff, the really contemporary stuff, huge amounts of it, of course, you know, because of the timing, you know, the late 80s, the early 90s, was HIV, you know, was HIV related in some way or another, but it was very early so it was gloom and doom and death and destruction um and I can't even remember I can't remember who wrote the poem I don't I feel terrible uh but there's like you know there's one poem that I remember that I actually like that talks about somebody's mother taking his AZT pills and passing them on to somebody else mm. who was taking AZT at the time, which, you know, was really the very first treatment. Um, whereas one of my current favorite poets uh, has, a, has a poem called On Prayer or On Prep. Mm. I mean, what a difference that's made. In and I'll disclose, I'm on prep and Erica knows that. I've been on prep now for about one and a half years, I forget, something like that. Um, thank you, Mary. Um, and I think too, like, it's no secret, I study the history of LGBTQ literature. So like, there's many moments here where I wanna try to like, <laughs> give the history, but I'm going to refrain because you'll hear my talk eventually this month, um, where all of that comes out of like, the tradition of the dead queer protagonist, which is a trope, or mm. when does it eventually become like a recuperation project? When does the happy ending happen? When are there more bi narratives? When are there more transgender novels, which are really starting to flourish right now? And thank goodness. Um, Bi-narratives? What? What? <laughs> We're imaginary. We're unicorns. I saw so what was it that I saw today? Something about um, someday I wish the world would love bisexual people as much as married couples that are having marital troubles do, or something like that. It's bisexual <laughs> women. It wasn't bisexual people, it's bisexual women. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. yeah, I mean it's you know yeah. but it's, it's it's unicorn thing. I mean, I get it, but but it's not. I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to say here, something I posted was in our um, clip for the teaser for this episode was the Pose clip. And Pose has done an amazing job of opening up sexual identity. And actually, if I don't know if any of you watch Pose, but you should. Um, and there's this moment where they sing Love's in Need of Love today at St. Vincent's where many from uh, who were diagnosed with HIV were um, sent there. And it's this really moment of caring and community. And yes, Erica's looking into the death aspect, but there's the death of caring too. There's mm -hmm. the, that's so important. It's so important how they come together. And those of you listening, I want you to know, there was so much networking of care ethics this is not staying in the death. Like this is them, especially the gay men coming together to help each other. And also, you know, so many allies, women, men, um, others in the LGBTQ community, which is why I pose like what I was, you know, kind of like joking with Erica, she always says about the unicorn idea of being bi, but what I love about Pose is that they actually don't really talk a lot about um, staying in a binary category. 
with their sexuality. Like if you watch it, they really don't out themselves. And I think that that's very important because it shows you the spectrum of identity. Um, and I think that's important with a show that is one of actually the first to have transgender people of color, women of color, mostly too, um, amplified. Um, and I don't wanna get this lost too. Like I've reflected on how I need to amplify more queer people of color in my canon. Um, and yeah, wanted to throw out that there's, um, there are many by authors now being published. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and that's one of the other things too about the label queer is you never know what somebody, you know, might define under that label. I mean, it's like, I can call myself queer as a football bat like I did at the beginning, but you'd never know what that actually means mm -hmm. unless I told you. Yeah. Um, yes, you can giggle at it again, Adam. But I don't know, I'm over it. I'm, okay, I'm good. good. I'm good now, I got it out of my system. Good. Which no, is another <laughs> phrase that you guys are not unfamiliar with. <laughs> no, and, and you know, you, you were talking about death and death of caring and everything. And I, you know, I keep coming back to this HIV narrative, which is kind of ridiculous because there's so much more to the world than that. But I mean, it, it changed everything. The fact that we had a president who for years wouldn't even say the word forced, I mean, it, it really, kicked a lot of doors down because people took it upon themselves and not just queer people um, to really force the issue. But what that meant too is that we saw these things come out, you know, in political action and we saw changes from, you know, Queer people in our, you know, movies and TV and media as the subject of, of ridicule or mocking or, you know, death, destruction and negative and negativity to this, the topic of our very special episodes to, <clears throat> you know, warnings and advertising, you know, warnings and losses of advertising revenue. But eventually we shifted to same-sex kisses and people coming out and now we see them just integrated into our television and into our movies and things like that um they should be yeah i'm a big fan of matt baum's youtube channel youtube channel because he does some great sort of historical perspective stuff and i keep I keep vlogging that over and over and over again, but really he is, he's, I mean, he's, he does a terrific job with it and he does it in sort of palatable sized chunks so that like, you don't feel like you're getting, you know, hit over the head with a huge documentary all at once. Mm -hmm. um, the one he just did, I think a week or two ago was about Rocco's modern life. Mm. which is you know and and, and and how it's you know and queerness in Rockwell's modern life I didn't watch that cartoon it was you know before it was in that I'm too old for cartoons <laughs> and not old enough to have had a resurgence of enjoying them but I'm also thrilled because the new Rugrats remake mm. has um Betty DeVille, Phil and Lil's mom, as a lesbian, finally. Wow. Right, um, finally, because finally. I have had arguments with people on, like, not arguments, but, like, I've seen some people who are like, oh, well, why are we changing things? So I'm like, wait a minute, as if we didn't know that she wasn't gay from the beginning? Like, I feel like Thank as a you. child growing up, I knew that she liked women. 
and nothing about that bothered me and nothing about the fact that she had children and a wife bothered me either she didn't have a wife she had a husband like that never bothered me I was just always like oh she was well, married to Howard. Yeah, she had a husband. She actually did have a husband. I'm sorry. I know I said wife. And I they were husband. openly I'm Jewish. I'm sorry. But they were like, one of the only was... Jewish cartoon families, too. Yeah, the pickles. Weren't the, weren't the um, pickles technically <laughs> Jewish, too? Or no? Were they just so? I, I totally. No, the pickles I'm sorry. Are next. Oh. Okay. They do, they do a fabulous job on their Passover episode and Hanukkah episode. Yes, that's they right. They are remarkably accurate. Yeah. Um, well, you we know watched, what? We watched Which I loved about them because I was just like, at, growing up as a Catholic, mm-hmm. as a Christian, just mm-hmm. always expecting. And I hate to say, like, always expecting, just because that's what society has taught my generation, you know, my religion since, you know, the dawn of time almost. It feels like that, oh, no, you're the right religion. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate this thing. You know, the fact that I was like, oh, wow, there's a whole other holiday at Christmas and they get eight kids, like, that they get gifts for eight nights. What the heck? Like, I was so excited about it. And then eventually, Mary, I haven't burst your bubble yet, but it's actually one of the least uh, (laughs) important holidays of the Jewish faith. But... That's a whole other. That's, yeah, that's, we'll that's save that like, for December. That's yeah. We'll, we'll save yeah, that for, we'll save when, it we for December about, when we um, talk about our holidays. But, <laughs> yes. We'll but so, but there, were, there were two more things I wanted to say about that. I mean, now we're seeing it not just in media aimed at adults, but media aimed at teens and tweens and kids too, mm-hmm. through you know through outlets like Disney and Nickelodeon and whatnot. But the other thing I wanted. to to say is as we're talking you know as we're talking now about uh you know well this family on this show is is jewish and oh now this character is in this remake is being is being written as as a lesbian for me like the whole identity thing the like one thing i learned through my my own process of exploration and coming out is for me, it's all intersectional. There was no way mm-hmm. I could come out until or unless I could reconcile my Jewish identity, my feminist identity, my queer identity. They all had to work together or I couldn't be the whole person that I am. So it's, I, I mean, I do say embrace the and, but I really mean it. It's not just, you know, about who you like to kiss. It's about much more than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is why Erica and I have had a lot of off-air discussions, and we still will always have them, um, <laughs> about, like, and Mary, actually, we might touch upon this later, but Mary knew me before I came out and after I came out, which I think is a really interesting um moment to have um but I when I read call me by your name you'll see when I write about my coming out narrative it plays a major role because the character Elio is not only thinking about his attraction to men he's also thinking about his Judaism and why he had to hide it and those on this team know, and it's very personal to me, that my family went through trauma with being Jewish. And I've started to come to how to reclaim what that means to me and how I can find the Judaism that speaks to me, but also speaks to my queerness. And I use the word queer sometimes, especially when I talk about my scholarship, I think because it's not just about the binary of same-sex desire with the text I study. It's about homoerotic desire and a spectrum. Um, but also I've had discussions that I'm not just stuck on a binary of only liking other men and being romantically romantically attracted to, th- to them. Like sometimes there are times where I've thought about, you know, a desire towards women and that's fine. Like I think, what it is, is we have to come to that understanding ourselves 
but I've realized heteronormativity and it's very, that's a loaded term, but um, I include it in my big thing from the American Psychological Association, which I make a joke because that was the association in the DSM that continued to pathologize homosexuality. So very interesting how things get flipped. Um, but heteronormativity is basically analogous to what Mary was saying about Christianity in America, which is it becomes this dominant religion and a normative religion and straightness has become a dominant social underpinning of what we do in our society. Um, yeah. But like Erica's saying, these are all related, like religion, uh, racial construction, um, sexual orientation. And the more now that I'm working on my chapter, I'm realizing I'm gravitating towards how sexual identity really isn't codified until the end of the 19th century. Guess what else isn't codified until the end of the 19th century? Any guesses? In America? Race? Race. Gender? Oh. Race, whiteness, and blackness is not codified until the end of the 19th century. And not many surprised. scholars argue that it has to do with sexual identity. Mm. And the pathology of the over-erotic black body. Yeah, unfortunately you cannot discuss race in this country or any other country, but especially in this country, without talking about the fear of so-called white men and their desire to protect so-called white women from the ravages of the other, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's like race in this country is very sexual. Mm -hmm. um, yes. in the way that it's constructed and it's yeah which is why and alice walker Gross. when i read the color purple um as an undergrad and alice walker is openly bisexual by the way um there's a bi author um and her daughter is too um that she is there's so much trauma in the color purple i mean i'm think a lot of people know about the narrative of The Color Purple, maybe more from the film, but um, there's also a lot of queerness and there's a lot of queerness in Nella Larson's passing, which is why when I teach it in the fall, I'm gonna pair it with The Great Gatsby because those books are written within two to three years of each other. And, you know, this is a lot of, that discussion could be about F. Scott Fitzgerald's obsession with whiteness fetishism and Nella Larson thinking about passing and colorism. And um, let's, let's not discount F. Scott Fitzgerald's obsession with passing with regards to Nick mm. uh, as mm -hmm. passing as straight. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And I do just want to point out there real quick from a sociological perspective, Gender and race are totally made up constructs. They are not yeah. literal. When it comes to race, it's what your ethnicity is. That's the scientific term for it. And when it comes to your gender, even though it's not really your gender, it's what your sex is, which really just dictates what is what genitalia you were born with. I mean, that's the side, like when it comes to science, like, I feel like we've gotten very convoluted with what we've accepted as social identifiers versus what are actual scientific identifiers. And that, and even with that, I, I'm not saying like, oh yeah, science rules. It does rule, but like science also says that just because you were born with a penis or a vagina does not dictate how you identify yourself and that gender is actually quite fluid mm -hmm. so you know I just you know I just wanted to say that because I do feel like it does get very convoluted and people think that gender and sex and race and ethnicity are the same thing and they are not one is scientific and one is totally made up to just socially separate people from who they are well so. yeah you're definitely hitting a button issue, which is biological essentialism versus social constructionism, um, which will forever be debated. Um, but 
I also was just going to say, like, what you're describing about that pathology of, like, knowing someone based on what they look like, right, a racial marker, which Nella Larson's passing really highlights. And if you think about it, F. Scott Fitzgerald really never describes anyone who's not white passing, which is important. Um, except is there is a scene in Manhattan where the there are um, there are laborers in Manhattan who, um, well, are hotel staff. And that is important because who works these Gilded Age mansions? Right. Um, and I was also going to say the, um, what's his name? Uh, Mayor Wolfsheim. He takes such pains to show that he's the other. Even though, even though there's no there, there's no description of his like, of his face. To I mean, I haven't seen any of the Great Gatsby movies because I just I just don't want to. But I think it's funny that they got a Bollywood actor to play that character because he's like he's he's basically he's basically non-whiteified in the novel, mm. to the point where that that makes perfect sense to me, mm. on some level. Yeah, yeah. Um... And if you're listening and you're trying to figure it out, he's Jewish. <laughs> Just so everyone who's listening understands. Oh, right. Mayor Volchan um, is Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But. And he loves his mother. That is true. It's actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm not going to go in the rabbit hole, but I do like the 70s version. And I thought that it was very well done. Uh, Robert Redford one mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. With Mia Farrow. I've been told I should see that. I just. I may, I may eventually. Okay, may you don't have to. But Passing is actually coming out as a film soon. Um, it was already released as an independent film um, and it's in black and white on purpose so that the audience isn't trying to, that there's this undercutting of, well, you think you can figure out who's passing as black or not. Well, guess what? The movie's in black and white, so. Mm. This is okay. the construction of race. But and to I, make it more difficult? Mm -hmm. Well, no, when I listened to the director describe it, it was more, we don't want it to be about you as a viewer trying to figure out a puzzle and think that this is a constructed race, like that these are markers. Like we want you to understand the psychological dilemmas of the female protagonist. Um, yeah. So Which I, female is a sex, by the way, not a gender. Right. Sorry, yeah. I just want to impress no, upon that fine. to maybe that's our fine. straight viewership who doesn't understand. Well, I also do, I'm not pushing, I hope this doesn't sound like, and it may, but I'm not pushing back against this, Mary, but I do want to like, no. know, especially in transgender literature and with media, especially if you haven't seen it, um, Oh, what is it? Laverne Cox produced it on Netflix. Dis, oh my, I might have to pause this. Go Hold on, I'm looking it up. The thing is to what you were born with in your pants, you know? <laughs> oh, so what I was, I um, really urge the listeners to watch Disclosure, Laverne Cox's produced documentary about transgender representation um, because, oh, this isn't comfortable saying, because it kind of questions what Mary's saying. And Mary and I are really good friends, but I think it's important to say that sex is actually not as constructed as people think it is, especially when it comes to transgender representation and this fetishism of what genitalia they have, which has been such a yeah. stigma for the transgender community. Right. Um, well, yes, well, I'm sorry. I did not want to promote yeah. any like transphobia or anything like that. That's not my intent. My intent was just to say that, right. you know, these are the two categories that society has broken up these things into. And one is scientific and one is not. And the one that is not should be absolutely determined by the person. And if they need to change, however, their appearance, whatever, absolutely go for it. That is what you need to do to feel comfortable. Please do it. Be your authentic you self. I just don't like, I, especially 
as someone who is straight and with the straight quote unquote community, I know that this is a huge confusion for them, that they don't understand that there is a difference between what is your biological sex versus your gender. And they don't understand how gender is way more fluid and way more determined by the person who is inhabiting their particular body and how they choose to express that. So, you know, like I said, I just wanted to make that clear because again, that is something that I have seen within the heterosexual community that seems to be a point of confusion. Well, it's true. We can take for granted that the people listening to our podcast or watching us um, know about the categories we're talking about and about the, um, have, have, a, have a certain, have, have like, are starting with us to a certain extent, right? Mm-hmm. Versus people who are curious and happen upon our dialogue somehow. Well, and I also think it's so worth, important, not worthy. <laughs> not the right word so important to note that these discussions don't happen a lot especially being an openly gay writer scholar educator person since 2008 um because it takes an emotional labor on my part and a lot of lgbtq people and erica too um you know i need to recognize erica Um, because a lot of it is countering these myths of established, what's seen as established norms. And like what Mary's talking about is very Darwinian. Like everything you're saying Mm -hmm. just reminds me of like why we have that racist system of scientific bias, which came from Darwin. Because I'm, I'm not a biologist, but I do know that chromosomally sex is far more complicated than XX or XY and that there are all kinds of things that can cause other things like androgen insensitivity or um you know other other chromosomal patterns that you know that that may not align with what we typically think of as XX or XY as the things that define biological sex and so I'm even hesitant to like define sex biologically like Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. um I am as well yeah I I mean I did watch there was a piece that um like when Bill Nye came back if y'all remember Bill Nye the science guy Mm -hmm. he came back and he really did like a deep dive into the two differences or, I mean, because I, honestly, I do think hermaphrodite, you know, people who are born with both sexual organs, you know, they do it's exist. Not, they are that third. They exist, you know, they should. Intersex. intersex. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm really, I apologize. I didn't want to offend anybody by saying that. Um, but no, this um, he really broke it down to like, the point where he was just like, look, so what you're born with XX or XY chromosomes, which is why your genitalia comes out the way that it does. What happens as far as psychologically with how your brain is formed, that's different, which is when he goes into the different types of gender, essentially. Now, now I'm, am I saying like that there are only like, you know, handful of types of what our quote-unquote biological sex is I'm not trying to say that or be disrespectful about it you know I'm just going with what what, you know I'm just trying to distinguish of what science says versus what society says which is where I feel where the problem is because I feel that we've tried to tie science and society together by creating this column of, oh, what is your gender? When that's not really, A, important for most forms you're filling out and also just not important as to who you are as a person. Mm. So I, well, wait, just cause 
as a quote. But I do want to say, Bill Nye, no, no, very wait, respectfully. Mary, I'm Mary, sorry. Mary, wait. I really want to say this, mm -hmm. which is, it is okay that you don't have the answers. You are working as an ally. We're going to have difficulties. That's because we have so many identities here in this space. And it's a lot to try to have these cross discussions. And I'll admit to everyone, Adam and I had some arguments because I felt very triggered by Adam, what I saw talking about homophobic discourse. And Adam didn't see it that way. And that's all right, because that wasn't what Adam's intention was. Like Mary's intention is not, I know Mary's intention is not to be transphobic. I think what it instead shows me like this whole week, and I can only speak for myself, we do not have enough widespread education on LGBTQ issues. And even like when I've asked Adam, what's the history of LGBTQ literature? And he gives me a blank stare. That to me says, uh-oh, this is why I do what I do. Because, you know, we should know what the history is. Like if I said to Adam, what's the history of old English? He could tell me right away. Um, not old English. Okay. <laughs> but, okay. You know what I mean. Um, I you tell me the history of the language. Um, I know what you mean. Like, yeah. there's a difference. There's a difference between what I, what I what I do uh, in queer literature, which is I have I have several favorite authors, versus knowing the trends, the way I do in my field, which is let's say 16th century uh, English literature. Well, and let me ask. I mean, I, I want to ask each of you, I mean, I think I'm really curious about, especially Adam and Mary being allies to the LGBTQ community. Sure. When was oh, the yeah. first time you both knew that there was a category known as LGBTQ literature and that it actually existed in a library or in a bookstore? And we are going to put a bookmark in our episode and leave you hanging for part two, which will be coming out in a few days where you'll hear Adam and Mary's answer to my question about LGBTQ literature. So as always, please follow us at Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. Please check out our Facebook, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And also thank you to all of our new followers on our website, which is ivorytowerboilerroom.com. And you can find that and a link to the resources from today's episode on the link in our episode notes. And we're always still looking for contributors for our blog space. So please, if you're interested, email us at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. And here is Emily and Michael O'Brien performing Blackberry Blossom. Stay well, everyone. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you.